Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 this morning. In our time together, we will finish chapter 27, making ever steady progress towards the conclusion of this great gospel. You know, as men and women, boys and girls, human beings, we have all kinds of limitations, don't we? We are finite creatures, and there is much that we're not able to do, many things we'd like to be able to do, and we're just not able. And one of those things that we might often like to do would be to read people's motives, We would like to know why they do what they do, but it remains off limits to us. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul would say that we probably can't even read our own motives fully and precisely. The human heart is very deceitful and desperately sick, and who but God alone can know it? So the The idea that we can look into a person's heart and know exactly what's going on there is a fool's errand. It is off limits to us. But we can have some general ideas about what's going on inside a person. Jesus says to us that the mouth speaks from the heart, right? And so what comes out of the mouth reveals some of what resides within the heart. And so we can get a glimpse of the human heart by people's speech. Beyond that, our actions can give a glimpse as to what's going on inside us. What do we value? What do we not value? How do we occupy ourselves? These give a glimpse of what's going on inside. The scriptures again say, as a man thinks in his heart, So he is. And so there is a certain sense that what we do, what I do, what you do, does reveal something about what's going on inside us. Well, we are looking this morning at the 27th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 55 and running all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 66. And as we look together at this section, we're going to identify three groups of individuals that play a direct role, really, in the amazing drama that is going to be played out in the next chapter, chapter 28. And there is a certain sense in which what is narrated for us here in verses 55 to 66 of the end of chapter 27 is kind of background material that sets up, really, the greater event that is narrated in chapter 28. Of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in one sense, this is for sure background material. But I think that in examining this material and the activities of the three groups of individuals involved here, that there is something instructive for us. That we can find something instructive here And in particular, uh, as we use this as somewhat of a springboard to examine our own reactions to the cross of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning here in this section is to look at three reactions to the death of Jesus Christ that reveal what is most important to people. Three reactions that reveal what is most important 
to these particular individuals. Okay? So, that first group of individuals that I want to, to, to talk about here in the first reaction, I'm calling devotion. Okay? Devotion. The first reaction to the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm calling devotion. Devotion. Now, throughout the gospel records and the book of Acts, we are repeatedly presented with uh, portraits of various women who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and become very devoted and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And that is uh, significant, particularly in light of of the general social status of women there in the first century. It is it is really quite something. Uh, stunning and amazing and noteworthy the number of times that the the writers of the Gospels, the four Gospel writers, and Luke as he narrates the the first 30 years of the church in the book of Acts, that he points out to us the kind of devotion and faithfulness and belief of various women. For example, just a few to get your thinking along these lines. We're presented in Matthew 9. I'm not going to turn you there, but you're familiar with it. In Matthew 9, we're presented with this unnamed woman who has been suffering with a hemorrhage for 12 years. She has been bleeding for 12 years. The bleeding, of course, renders her ceremonially unclean and thus unable to fully come close to the God of Israel. And she, acting with a remarkable level of devotion and faith, seeks to come close to Jesus and to merely, in her words, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be made well. You remember the story, right? And of course, she achieves that goal. And uh, Jesus, turning to her, says to her, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. That is an illustration of someone who has an incredible amount of faith and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ that would push her to that level. We're also introduced in John chapter 4 to a woman, a a Samaritan woman, who met with Jesus at the well. You remember her. She had been married and divorced five times, was now living with a man who was not her husband. She and Jesus engage in some religious banter initially, and then Jesus zeroes in on her heart, doesn't he? And he presents to her the reality that he is the long-awaited Messiah. She, responding in faith, goes back to her village and spreads the news far and wide. Again, this is a woman who would have been an outcast in her village, because of her unsuccessful attempts uh, with men. And yet now she becomes a prominent evangelist within her, business, or within her village. There's many converted in her village. And, and they say, we now believe not because of your testimony, but because we ourselves have seen. So again, she's presented as one who, who comes to Christ and then speaks openly and actively about her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're introduced in Acts chapter 16 to the first convert in Europe, a woman by the name of Lydia. And she too, the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel and she believed. And then she says, when she and her own household have been baptized, she urged us, Luke narrates, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she not only believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, but she acts immediately to open her home in hospitality to these missionaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
uh, her, in, there in Philippi, a church is born and it is born in her home. So again, someone who is very worthy of emulating. Well, before us this morning in Matthew's account here, beginning in verse 55, uh, we are introduced to some other ladies, some other women. And they are presented uniformly across the gospel accounts, and they are across all four gospel accounts, as very devoted followers of Christ. So these ladies that we're about to meet here are characterized by devotion, by devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 55. Many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, we're introduced to them here, actually not for the first time, but we're, we're, they're spoken of here, but, but we don't really know that much about them. Actually, very little about these ladies. Let's begin with Mary Magdalene and just speak a little bit about what we know about her. She is spoken of in all four Gospels. So she is uniformly presented or introduced through all four of the Gospels. She came uh, by, uh, by virtue of the name here, Mary Magdalene. She came from a fishing village of Magdala. Okay? Magdalene was not her last name. She was Mary who hails from Magdala. Magdala was a small fishing village located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, just a couple of miles north of the Roman city of Tiberias, a a city given over to Roman debauchery and idolatry. She herself from this small fishing village. Magdala is located to the uh, south and the west of Capernaum. And of course, Jesus spent a good bit of his public ministry there in and around Capernaum. So he would have intersected and interfaced with the residents of Magdala and its environs on a regular basis. We don't know much about Mary from Magdala except this. Jesus delivered her from possession by seven demons. This was a woman who had been demon-possessed, not by just one, but by seven demons. Now, demon possession, as it's portrayed in the scriptures, is an affliction, is an affliction. And it is not necessarily the direct result of some sort of gross sin, not necessarily. Demon-possessed people are always presented as victims in the scriptures, And they are generally presented as those who are friendless, restless, joyless, hopeless, self-destructive, dark, and miserable. It is an absolutely horrific situation to find oneself in. And Jesus delivers this poor woman from the possession of seven Demons and Mary from Magdala never, ever got over it. Never. She, along with several other women, were uh, followers of Jesus and, in fact, financially supported Jesus and his itinerant band of 
of missionaries. Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. These women traveled with Jesus and his followers. Now, exactly what they did as part of the band, we could only surmise. But Luke does tell us that several of them were women of means, and they used their own personal finances to provide the financial underpinnings of Jesus' public ministry. So they were wholeheartedly devoted. They were all the way in, as it were. Mary Magdalene. We are also introduced to Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, here in verse 56. Comparing gospel to gospel, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is also known as uh, Mary, the wife of Alphaeus, who is probably also known as uh, Clopas. And so Alphaeus and Clopas are probably two names, I think this is likely, two names for the same individual, the husband of this Mary. She is the mother of James and Joseph, also known as James the Lesser. And Joses, sometimes he is called, in fact, in Mark's gospel, he's referred to as Joses. Okay, so this is uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. We don't know anything more than that. And then there is, finally here, verse 56, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That's how she is known, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee are James and John, right? The sons of thunder. Likely, she is also the Salome, that is spoken of in Mark 15, 40. I think that's probably actually her name, Salome, okay? Sister of Mary, mother of Jesus. Therefore, she would be Jesus' aunt, and James and John, the sons of thunder, would be Jesus' cousins, okay? So that's sort of how the family tree worked. Now, these women, these three Mary, or excuse me, two Marys and a Salome here. Uh, when when uh, Jesus is first crucified, according to John's gospel, they are very near to the cross. In fact, John 19, verse 25, tells us that, um, that they are close enough to hear what Jesus says to John, his cousin, when he commends the care of his mother Mary into John's care. So at that point in time, these women, including uh, Jesus' mother Mary, are very close to the cross and can hear this conversation. But by the time uh, Matthew, what's uh, happening here where Matthew is narrating, the uh, fury of the mob has grown, the brutality of the crucifixion has increased to the level that these women have drawn back. Now, they may have just drawn back because it was such a horrendous scene, they could no longer uh, tolerate it being that close, or it may be that the mob just sort of elbowed them to the back. But, but I want you to notice there, verse 55, they're looking on from a distance. So by this time, they have been pushed back from the, from the foot of the cross. Now, after Jesus is taken down from this from the cross, right? So he, um, there's the three hours of darkness from, from uh, noon to 3 p.m. in which the wrath of God, uh, the, the incredible fury of the wrath of God against the sin of his people is poured out on his son. And then Jesus surrenders his spirit. He, he um, gives up his life, as it were. And he is to be taken down from the cross. And when he is taken down, what we find is that Mary Magdalene and uh, Mary, the mother of, uh, of James and Joseph here, 
follow the body of Jesus. And they see where he was laid. Verse 61. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So they were close to the cross initially. They're moved back from the cross either by their own desires or by pushed back from the crowd. But when Jesus is taken away, they follow the body. And so they are, they are with him. That's the point I want you to see. They continue to remain with him, both in life and in death. They see where the body is laid. Now, providentially, this is a really, really good thing. Because think about this with me. If they had not followed, then the disciples would have had no idea where Jesus lay. They only know where he has been buried because Mary Magdalene followed it to the tomb. And she is the one in the morning, who, of course, who comes early and uh, is the first witness of the resurrection. All right? So, these two ladies... Uh, follow the body of Jesus. Now, why would they follow the body of Jesus? Well, they are devoted to him, to be sure. And as part of their devotion, they, they want to make sure that he receives a proper pre- uh, preparation for his burial. And so we're told that according to Luke's gospel, Luke 23, verses 55 to 56, that uh, they went that Friday afternoon before the Sabbath begins. The Sabbath began at sundown about 6 p.m. So you've got to get the chronology in your mind. He's dead at 3 p.m. 6 p.m. is the beginning of the, of the Sabbath. So there are three hours. During those three hours, they follow the body to the tomb. They find out where he is. And then they go to purchase various uh, spices to come back and to anoint his body. That's what Luke tells us. Luke also, or excuse me, Mark tells us in Luke chapter 16 and verse 1 that furthermore they went out Saturday night. So after the Sabbath ends at sundown on on Saturday, about 6 p.m. on Saturday, they go back into the marketplace to purchase additional spices in order to be ready for Sunday morning when they will go to the tomb in order to anoint the body of Christ. That's why they're there early Sunday morning. Verse 1, chapter 28, Matthew's Gospel. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. They were there to try to wash and anoint the body of Christ. Now later, uh, Mary is at the tomb. Uh, John narrates this in John 20. She's there at the tomb. Uh, Peter and, and uh, John have already come, seen the empty tomb, gone in, looked, turned away, scratching their heads, and have left. And Mary Magdalene still remains there in the garden, right? And she is, um, she's very distraught about all of this. And she sees whom she thinks is the gardener, and she wants to know, where have you laid the body of my Lord, and so forth. And... Um, Through the grief, Jesus calls to her, and she recognizes him, and at that point, she grabs a hold of him. You remember this? She grabs onto him, and Jesus says to her, Mary, stop clinging to me. John narrates it in John 20, 16 to 17. Mary, stop clinging to me. Now, John MacArthur, in his book, little devotional book called 12 Extraordinary Women, says the following in in, uh, reflection upon Mary. And it's good. I want to read it for you. Quote, 
most of us are too much like the Apostle Thomas, hesitant and pessimistic. Jesus urged Thomas to touch him in order to verify Jesus' identity. It is remarkable and sad, but true. Most of Jesus' disciples, especially in this postmodern age, constantly need to be coaxed nearer to him. Mary, by contrast, did not want to let him go. Did not want to let him go. Beloved, these women were last at the cross, first at the tomb. Last at the cross, first at the tomb. They were devoted to Jesus Christ. The cross and all of its brutality did not scare them off. Their devotion to Jesus Christ, even in the face of what appeared to be a crushing defeat, was not enough to to scare them off and to overcome their loving devotion to their Savior. They were devoted to him even when the situation appeared hopeless. This is devotion. And it is worthy to emulate. It is worthy to emulate. The second reaction to the cross, I'm calling duty. Duty. The women are characterized by devotion. The next group of individuals will meet. Actually, Matthew will only focus on one, but there are two involved. And they are characterized by duty. Duty. Now, Pilate. we got a flashback to Pilate. You remember him? He's the Roman governor who washed his hands in public, right? And said, I am done with this matter. Take him yourself and crucify him. The crowd yells out, his blood be upon us and our children. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate thinks he's done with this matter, this very unpleasant matter. He thinks he's done with it. But in the providence of God, that's not to be so. He still has a role to play. And so, according to John's gospel, the Jewish leadership returned to Pilate asking that the legs of the three crucified victims be broken. He requested that Pilate would order the soldiers to break the legs of the three crucified men in order to hasten their death so that their bodies could be taken down from the cross prior to the beginning of the Sabbath. Now, without getting too deeply into this, the process of crucifixion, the the victim of crucifixion would push off with their legs uh, in order to relieve the pressure on their diaphragm. And that would enable them to gulp in a breath of air, and then they would sag again until they were you know, struggling for breath, and then they would push off again. Of course, there was searing pain involved because they were pushing off of feet that had, had a spike driven through them. And so there would be this very macabre, up-and-down motion that would go on while life ebbed in, from the body. And so in order, and, and depending on the strength of the individual, this could go on for a very long time. So in order to hasten the death, Pilate gives in to Jewish sensibilities here, and he orders the Roman soldiers to take a mallet and to smash the legs 
likely the shin bones of the victims. Therefore, there would be nothing to push off against. They would sag on the cross and they would asphyxiate and it would be the end. And then the bodies could be taken down off the cross. Now, the reason that the, the uh, Jewish leadership requested this had nothing to do with any thoughts of mercy or anything like that. It had to do with their, their um, pietistic approach to the law, which said there that if a corpse remained overnight hanging on a tree, that it would defile the land of Israel. Specifically, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. Where it's written there, Moses writes, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So they want the, they want the legs smoke, smashed, broken, so the, that the victims would die, so they could get them off the cross and, and get them in some kind of a burial situation before the Sabbath arrives. Pilate accedes to their request. And so the soldiers go out to uh, smash the legs. And when they, they smash the legs of the other two uh, men who were crucified there, but when they come to Jesus Christ, they find that he is already dead. And he's already dead because... Earlier than that, he had, right, given up his spirit. He had surrendered his life as an atonement for the sin of his people. Because he is already dead, the soldiers do not smash his legs. John notes that not a bone of the paschal victim shall be broken. And so in fulfillment of that prophecy, not a bone of Jesus is broken either. But the Roman soldier jabs a lance into his side, right? And John narrates that out comes blood and water. Now, after the official request from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, Pilate is visited again. He has another visitor, another member of the Sanhedrin comes, and, but this one is engaged on a different kind of mission, uh, mission. He comes in order to request the body of Jesus Christ. He wants to deal reverentially with the body of Christ. And so when he comes to ask Pilate for the body, Pilate is very, very surprised, we're told in Mark's gospel. Very surprised. In fact, he calls the centurion and he says, are they dead already? I mean, I, I just gave this order. Are they already dead? And the pilot reports, or the, the, the centurion reports to Pilate that Jesus is already dead. And so Pilate says to this individual, you can have the body. Take it. Now, typically, bodies of crucified victims were not given proper burial. If it were up to the Romans, they would leave the body on the cross and let the scavengers be done with it. Or they would take it down and just throw it in a basic dump, a trash heap. They had no, no reverence for the body at all. The family of the victim would uh, ordinarily come and request the body of that relative. But they would bury the, the deceased person in a common grave. They would not bury them in a family grave. And they would not bury them in the family grave because of the shamefulness by which they died. And so they would not want to bring that shame on their family. They would not bury their, their family member who had been executed in this fashion, particularly one who had been hung on a tree, right? Because they are 
according to the law, accursed of God. And so they would not take him into the family tomb. Interestingly here, no family member of Jesus comes forward to claim his body. Nor do his disciples, not the, not the 11, right? The closest ones. None of them come forward to claim the body either. In fact, Matthew tells us that a very surprising individual comes forward to claim the body. Someone who has very much to lose in doing this. Someone who previously, according to John 19 and verse 38, had been a secret follower of Jesus Christ. And so we are introduced, verse 57, to this individual. When it was evening, that's a, that's a loose, loose statement. It's basically saying that, you know, the Sabbath is quickly approaching. When it was evening, and you got to think about this. Jesus dies at 3. The Sabbath begins at 6. There's only three hours here, and this individual we're going to meet has to go to Pilate, and he has to request the body, and then he has to come back, and there are certain preparations and so forth. So he's moving very, very quickly in order to get this done before the Sabbath. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea, we don't know where Arimathea is, only could guess, named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. John tells us a secret disciple of Jesus. And when John uses that terminology, that is not a compliment. He is a disciple of Jesus, but up until this moment, he has been unwilling to make that reality public. We'll talk about that in a minute. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now Joseph is a rich man. He is a powerful man. He is a, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a leader in the community of Jerusalem. And thus he has access to Pilate. He's not just any old person. He is a very positioned individual. And, and by virtue of that, he's able to gain direct audience with Pilate himself... And he comes, and he comes at great personal risk to come forward and to claim the body of Jesus Christ. Again, we're told Luke's gospel, Luke 23, 50, he was a good and righteous man. And as a member of the Sanhedrin, the council, he had not consented to the death of Jesus. He was opposed to the death of Jesus. Why? Well, because he was a disciple of Jesus. And he, along with another individual who is unnamed in Matthew's gospel, by the name of Nicodemus, right, had come forward. They were both secret disciples. They did not identify with Jesus while alive, but once dead, they come forward. They come forward. And they ask for the body. Now, it's interesting. I think just the, the irony of all of this. Jesus' public disciples, upon his death, go into hiding. Jesus' secret disciples upon his death come into the open. And they come at great personal risk. This is going to put them on the, on the map. They're going to make declaration to all their extended family members, to, to all of the Sanhedrin, to the, to the entire leadership structure of the nation of Israel, including to the Roman authorities. They are now identifying with this hated individual who has just been crucified under the charge of insurrection. This is a major gamble on their part. They are putting their entire lives and fortunes on the line for this. They have been brought out into the open. 
And Joseph, verse 59, after Pilate grants the body to him, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Joseph and Nicodemus care for the body of Christ. Now, to care for the body of a deceased person is, in Judaism, is an act of piety. It is, it is something that a, that a um, religious individual would do. It's something that ought to be done. It's something a righteous man would do. Would care about the body, the human body, understanding that it had been made by God, and God had declared it very good, and therefore, the care of the human body is not insignificant. And so being a a righteous man, being a a pious Jew, to come forward and to care for the body of Jesus in and of itself is an expression and demonstration of what it means to be a righteous man in that context. But it's more than that, as Matthew and the other gospel writers make clear. It's more than the simple piety of caring for a dead person, a, a human body. Now, they are very rushed. We said this, right? Sabbath is coming quickly. There's only a couple of hours here. There's a lot of preparations that need to be made. There's back and forth uh, uh, trips across the city and so forth. And so there is not a lot of time. And so they, they need to do what they're going to do. They are going to do their duty, but they're going to do it to the best of their ability in the, in the time constraints that they have. I think they don't have time to wash the body which I think plays into why Mary Magdalene, who has sat there and watched the proceedings, decides herself, along with with Mary, mother of James and Joseph, that they're going to come back on Sunday morning and they're going to basically uh, complete what should have been done for a human body according to Jewish religious standards. The body needed to be bathed. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, there's not time. And so It appears that they pass by this common practice and instead they move on to the the treatment of the body in preparation for it to be laid to rest. And they do so with with the kind of care that would be lavished upon a king. They treat Jesus with the kind of, of exceptional care that a king would receive. We'll see that in a minute. And I think it's interesting, at least it is to me, that uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 43, talking about Joseph of Arimathea, says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's such an interesting statement. Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for Messiah's kingdom. He was looking for the coming of the kingdom of Messiah. He had found Messiah, and he expected the kingdom to come with Messiah in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies. And then it all goes terribly wrong. And yet he still, out of his duty, I believe, to the Messiah, gives him the kind of burial a king would receive. So they wrap Jesus' body, and they wrap it in a clean linen cloth. Verse 59, do you see that? A clean linen cloth. Now that's not a cloth that's just been laundered. Okay, the idea here is that this is a brand new linen burial shroud. It's brand new. It's not been used by anyone before. And they, 
they spread in the folds of the garment as he is wrapped. Now, the Jews didn't embalm like the Egyptians, but Jewish burial methods, they would have a, they would have a cave, uh, either a natural cave or they'd have a cave cut, and there would be these shelves within, the, within this cave. And if it was a family tomb, it would be large with multiple areas. And they would lay the body in there, wrapped with various spices to, to offset the, the smell of decay, and they would leave the body there for a year. And then the eldest son would go back, reopen the the, uh, tomb, enter in, and then take the bones that were left, be collected, and they would be be placed in another part of the tomb, or later they would be placed in what's called an ossuary, a bone box. And so when they spoke of sleeping with their fathers, that's what they meant, is that your bones would be placed with the bones of your father who was already in this family tomb. Okay? So they would wrap the body and they would, they would perfume the body with various spices in order to overcome the terrible smells, obviously, that emanate from the decomposition of a human body. Now, it's worth, uh, at this point, I'll just turn you over to, to uh, Luke 9, or excuse me, John 19. I don't, want to tra- I don't want to jump all over the place. We lose our train of thought, but it's worth turning to this one. John 19, beginning in verse... Uh, we'll pick it up in 38. That's fine. Verse 38. John 19:38. So John 19 and verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus who had first come to him by night, came also bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. And um, it's not the, not the kind of pounds that you and I think about with 12 or 16 ounces. It's more like 12 ounces. So it's about yeah, 75 pounds, roughly, in the way we would account for it. About roughly 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloes. These are, these are expensive. This is expensive stuff. Uh, so they took, verse 40, the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. I'll just finish it out. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So, they have wrapped him in this brand new funeral shroud. They have, they have poured in uh, the, the quantity of spices fit for a king. But they have had to act hastily, they've had to act quickly, and they have laid him in this tomb. Back to Matthew 27, verse 60. They laid it, that is the body of Jesus, in his, that is Joseph's, own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. Now remember, Joseph is from Arimathea. He is not Joseph of Jerusalem. So he, but he has evidently moved to Jerusalem because he has paid to have a family tomb uh, uh, cut from the rock somewhere close to the city of Jerusalem, and there's a garden nearby and so forth. So again, it speaks of his wealth, it speaks of his prominence, it speaks of his position. And he has made preparation for himself and his family. He has prepared this tomb, and, and we're told here by Matthew, it has never been used before. Never been used before. Now, some people say, well, he did that because he knew Jesus wouldn't be using it long, and it was no big deal. Not so. Not so. 
Because Jesus died as a condemned criminal, to lay him in this tomb was to defile this tomb. What this meant is that no family member of Joseph would ever agree to be buried in this tomb. This is a one-time use. By doing this, that tomb is now done. It's sealed. It'll never, ever be used again. Joseph must now find another place and have another family vault constructed. Okay, So I'm just telling you this so you kind of get an idea of what's involved here. This is not a small matter. This is not, this man has taken duty to the nth degree, to the nth degree. He has performed what he has performed here at great personal cost. And in the process, right, he fulfills the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 9, where it says, His, that is, the Messiah's grave was assigned with wicked men, yet... He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So Joseph is a wealthy man. He's an older man, to be sure. Nicodemus himself is an older man. So uh, when, uh, when it says that Joseph did this and Nicodemus did this, we just need to recognize the fact that it's probably their servants that actually did it but it would have been done under their own close supervision. So it's the same thing as if they had done it. Okay, but this large stone, you see in verse 60, a large stone is rolled against the entrance of the tomb. The stone would have been cut, would have been circular in form, and they would have had, a, had a, like a, a, a trough cut such that the stone could be rolled in the trough in front of the, in front of the uh, burial vault, in front of the cave mouth, and it would have sealed it off, and it would have kept any kind of animals or anything from getting in there. So, We have two sets of individuals so far. We have the women who are characterized by devotion. We have Joseph and Nicodemus who are characterized by duty. Maybe I can just say it this way. Some people express love by being there. Some people express love by doing things. Joseph is a doer. Mary and the others are beers. And they're both equally valid. They're both equally valid. Now we are introduced to this third group. They're characterized by desperation. We have devotion, we have duty, we now have desperation. Verse 62. Now... That's an adversative. It's designed to, to, to make you stop and go, okay, there's a comparison about to happen here. So in comparison, in contrast to the, to the kind of lavish preparations that have been made by Joseph, we now have the leadership of the nation. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, so this would now be Saturday morning, It is Sabbath, but it is early Saturday morning. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am able to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. So, a Saturday morning, sometime between 
when Joseph, you know, when they had left Pilate, Joseph has gone to Pilate, asked for the body. It's now Saturday morning. Joseph has laid the body in his own tomb. They find out. They find out that Jesus is not laying in a trash dump somewhere. His body's not in a trash dump. But instead, what has happened is that, that one of the prominent members of the leadership of the nation, in fact, two of the prominent members of the leadership of the nation, have come forward and have declared their allegiance to Christ and have asked for his body. And so they've got a problem. These are now become desperate men. And so they do what they normally would not do on a Sabbath, particularly a high Sabbath, is they go to Pilate to request an audience with him again because they are desperate to prevent the spread of the possible popularity of Jesus brought about by some kind of uh, idea that he has risen from the dead. And so they are, they are overwhelmed with their own fear. I just find it so interesting. They feared him in life. They feared him in death. And so they go. It's also, I think, ironic in that the number of times that Jesus spoke about his resurrection on the third day, he did so in private to his disciples, and they never believed him. They, they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't process it. They didn't want to hear it. And so it went, you know, it went in one ear and out the other. And here are these, uh, the enemies of Jesus, and... They have heard of this resurrection on the third day. How? We don't know. Maybe Judas told them. We're not sure. But somehow they heard of it, and they're worried. They're worried about it. And so they, they are afraid, right, of the disciples are going to come, steal his body, proclaim this resurrection, and in their minds, you know, that lie, the lie of the resurrection, is going to be worse than the lie that he was the Messiah. How badly they have miscalculated His disciples, the last thing in their mind was to go and open the tomb and steal his body and proclaim him alive from the dead, right? They are completely devastated. They are all hiding, afraid for their own lives. But in the minds of the the leadership here, the idea that Jesus might, uh, uh, that a story might spread that he's been raised from the dead would, would undo everything for them. In their opinion, it's even worse but even worse than he's the Messiah. Listen, he went around and said he was the Messiah, and we got him crucified, and that was that. But if the notion goes around that he's risen from the dead, then we really got problems. We really got problems. So they asked Pilate to set up a guard over the tomb until the third day. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, You have a guard, Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, there's a, there is a difference of opinion here with regard to the, to the verb translated have. In the Greek, it could be an indicative verb, it could be an imperative verb. They're identical in form. And so, not sure exactly what Pilate's saying. If it's, if it's an imperative, then he's basically saying something like, I grant you a guard. Have a guard. I grant you a guard, Roman soldiers, to go guard the tomb. Some think it's, that's what's happening. If it's in the indicative, what he's basically saying is you have a guard of your own, which is the temple guard. So we're not sure. It's either the temple guard or it's actually a detachment of Roman soldiers. 
One or the other. I'm inclined actually to think it's the temple guard. And the reason I'm inclined that way is because later, when the, when the, after the resurrection, the guard reports to the chief priests first, not to Pilate. And then they say, hey, if Pilate ever finds out about this, we'll take care of you, right? So that, to my thinking, that doesn't really seem like the way the Roman guards would act. But we'll talk about that more when we get there. So anyway, could be uh, imperative, could be the indicative. But the point of the matter is that uh, because this is a Roman capital case... They have to go to Pilate and they have to get his permission to secure the grave. And they get it. They get it. One way or another, either he sends a detachment of soldiers, you know, enough. Fine, take them. Go. Or he says, listen, you got your own soldiers. Go take, I don't care. Stop bothering me. Saturday morning. You know? Either way. So they go. Verse 66. And they went. And they made the grave secure. How did they make the grave secure? Not positive. But likely what they did was to take a, a, a small cord and they would, they would pour wax on, uh, they put one end of the cord on the big stone that would roll in front of the door and they put wax on it and they'd seal it with their signet ring and they'd put the other end of the cord against the face of the cave mouth and they would put wax on that and seal it with their signet ring. And then if the stone moved, of course, the cord would become dislodged and they would know that somebody's been into the tomb. So that's probably something like that is what happened. They sealed the tomb. That's what it means. They made it secure. And they set a guard on it. They set a guard. So they've set up guards and they've arranged it in such a way that if it's ever disturbed, they will know. They will know. These are desperate people. You think about it. These are really desperate men. Their entire empire is at risk. All that they think is important, all that they have built, all that they've accomplished, all that they believe in is, for them, on the line here. They got rid of him. They, they killed him. They got him killed. But, but they're still panicked. They're still panicked by him and desperate to do anything they can. Because Jesus is, they're just afraid he's going to disrupt their lives. Alive or dead? This guy's a disruption. And they're desperate. And, beloved, I think that's exactly how the unbelieving mind operates. That Jesus is someone who must be put in the ground and kept in the ground. The idea, you've got to keep him down. You've got to keep him away. We can't deal with him. And so for the unbelieving mind, they are desperate to keep Jesus dead and buried. Dead and buried. Of course, for the believing mind and the gospel presentation, the centerpiece of our message is what? He has risen from the dead. It does come down to that. If Jesus is risen from the dead, if the tomb is empty, not because the disciples stole his body, but if the tomb is empty because he rose from the dead as he said he did, then he is who he said, and every knee shall bow. But if you can keep him in the ground, if you can keep him in the tomb, then you can keep him at arm's length, and you don't have to deal with him. And so, yes, they are very, very desperate 
to ensure that he stays dead. But again, uh, the irony that is woven all through this section, the very plans that they make to ensure that Jesus doesn't and his disciples basically don't disrupt them, right, by an empty tomb, they are the ones who arrange the seal, they are the ones who arrange the guard, and thus they inadvertently become this wonderful living proof to the reality of what? The very resurrection that they, that they desperately seek to try to avoid. I love, oh, I love God at so many levels, and uh, I really love his irony. Okay? For he will make the lips of the wicked praise him. He is so powerful. He is so sovereign. And in his providence, he works every single detail to bring about his great plan. And so here it is, right here. They're doing everything they can. They're desperate to avoid the reality. And they become the the proof positive that he rose from the dead. That he rose from the dead. Wow. You gotta love it. You just gotta love it. Some people follow Christ out of a deep and abiding devotion. Others follow and serve Christ in a, in a, in a form of duty. Their love is is expressed by what they do. They're both commendable. They're both commendable. But there are others, maybe someone here this morning, who's just desperate to avoid the, the reality of the resurrection. You would do anything to avoid this topic. May the Spirit of God open your eyes to the truth. Give up. Stop your protest. Bow your knee, surrender your heart to the living one. That you too may know his everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the message just the reality of it all, human nature that's revealed. I thank you that you are so powerful that you can make even the wicked ultimately end up serving your purposes. We thank you that Jesus has conquered sin and death, that he is alive. And that we too live because he's alive. When we come into faith union with him, he shares with us his life, the life of the age to come. We pray, Father, that that reality would become true for each and every one of us here this morning in the sound of my voice. Be merciful, O God. Take the blinders from our eyes. Let us see and believe. 
for Jesus' sake. Amen.